Puss in Boots. He's terrible. Hello, and welcome to episode 35 of the world-famous Tetrawad's Orgy podcast. I'm Princess Bubblegum, ruler of the Candy Kingdom. Hmm. Really? <laughs> uh, I'm uh, uh, Darren Nash. Yeah. Yeah. And in <laughs> and in this episode, and I'm a dumb earth. That's something else I forgot to open, which is the agenda. The agenda. So all that okay. faffing around you did just before, just now, you said, "Oh, there's things I meant to have open." One of those what? things was not the agenda. <laughs> oh damn it! I forgot to find that message. Um, so we, we've got okay. We've got a little bit of follow up. We've got some exciting news, or actually, it's not at all exciting. Then there's well, there's the news from the world of news is exciting, and so well, we're going to talk about some new. Uh, Fossil things, Cenozo- mostly Cenozoic stuff, I think. Mm. <laughs> and did you like I wrote popular tat in the <laughs> in the agenda? Yeah. And then we're going to finish with a, a, a we're going to finish with one of Uncle Darren's anecdotes, which uh, went down a storm last time. So, um, yeah, start. F-U. Yeah, it's the first F-U. thing on the agenda. Okay, right. So, F you. And by the way, we're on a strict schedule here. Keep your eye on the clock. Yeah. Ch- uh, F you. Um, so we spoke maybe last time about this study by Christine, Janice and colleagues on the possibility that the Neurin kangaroos did not hop, but strode. Is that the right past? Stroded. <laughs> Stroded. <laughs> um, and, and I said that I had some, you know, some skepticism about this for various reasons. And uh, now there's in um, Berlin... Uh, the annual Society of Vertebrate Paleontology meeting has just been held, and neither of us went for Idiots. various reasons. Mm, Idiots. Mm. Looks like it was good fun. And well done, you, if you went. Mm. Well done. Slow you. clap to you. Um, <laughs> uh, I understand there were a couple of talks there about this research, people trying to test the idea whether these Denurian kangaroos were striders or hoppers. And not allowed to talk about it because it hasn't been published. Strictly embargoed SVP type stuff, but um, yeah, they uh, the the striding thing apparently is uh, dubious, and uh, the, there's good reason for thinking they were hoppers, but can't say more than that. Um, we we have another bit of follow up, which is a correction from our good friend and regular podcast listener, Krakus Varsovian freediver, who basically provided a lot of uh, supplementary information to the discussion we were having last time about free diving um, uh, I'm just going to quote a few bits of it competitive free divers don't dive with exhaled lungs yeah saw this out last time thanks very much um, uh, Krakus is a recreational free diver who has been one for nearly four years and hold and holds free dive certifications uh, with a number of uh, groups um, as also trains um uh, breath hold swimmers and divers with the Toronto Free Dive Club. Diving on an empty club would be contrary to the point of a free dive. The goal with competitive breath hold dives is to achieve maximum depth. For this to be possible, one must make available as much oxygen for metabolism as possible for the duration of the, the dive. With the saturation of serum hemoglobin, having a reservoir of oxygen for gas exchange is useful for the extension of the dive. So um, now we're on a real 
time limit for this particular episode, so I'm not going to read the, the whole of this. But um, just just one more thing: uh, some divers do flood their sinuses, in keeping with what I had said. So that was valid. This is specifically undertaken so that air from there, from the lungs, does not have to be used to equalise pressure, equalise pressure in the airspaces in the head. As such, the point of flooding sinuses is essentially to increase the amount of air available for gas exchange in the lungs. That's crazy, the idea that we can use our sinuses as a... Wow. We can use our sinuses for, as, as like a reservoir for gas exchange. That's, that's nuts. So, so thank you, Krakus Varsovian. If that is your real name, of course we know it isn't. Dr. Krak- <laughs> Dr. Krakus Varsovian from his undersea lair off the coast of Canada, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Canadian. Yeah. Thank you very much for that. Uh, so, so that was kangaroos, Craigusville, Sovian, yeah. and freediving. Um, any, any, any other follow-up on your part? Um, no. Okay, so that's follow-up. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah, probably a good time to mention it, that the, uh, sorry, the email account broke again, and I haven't been getting emails again. So, yeah, there's a bit of a backlog, which I'll be going through. <laughs> Again, yeah. So that's that's why we missed Krakus's uh, email, and yes. doubtless many others. And and who knows how many cash for questions? Because uh, we do still get cash for questions, but indeed. But uh, I don't know. They're not as the way to do that is in the PayPal notes. Otherwise, it could get lost. Yes. So moving on. Moving um, on. News from the world of Darren and John. Uh, anything to report on your end? I don't think so. No. Okay. Moving swiftly on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Tezzy Wiki. Wiki Wiki. Yeah, keeping an eye on Tezzy Wiki. It's coming along. It's coming along really well. It looks great. So, if you if you if you're interested in the size and scope of the Tezuniverse. Uh, <laughs> oh, Tezuniverse, very nice. Tezuniverse is normally what I prefer. Yeah, but I but, think Tezuniverse is better. Tezuniverse, guys, write that down. <laughs> Tezuniverse. Um, or if you think you can contribute, or if you want to, uh, up, or, you know, help with uploading stuff, pictures, whatever, um, then uh, it's now part of the official. Te- it's now canon. Yeah, now canon. So where is it? Where does one? What does one put into the that bar on the top of the internet? Also uh, known as the address bar. <laughs> you go to wiki.tetzu.com. and you'll go to main page first of all, and there's a nice little icon thing, which I guess you designed, didn't you? But um, yeah, it's looking good. Yeah, and, and uh, so Cameron McCormick deserves special mention here. He is not the only contributor, but he is the primary contributor. Um, mis- miscellany, bottom right of the screen. Citizens of the Tetsu Empire. Have you seen this? Yes. Uh, it's surprisingly male-dominated. Sorry about that, but. Um, <laughs> Emperor Darren Nash, Grand Vizier John Conway, Prime Minister Memo Kozman, Propaganda Minister Ethan Kosak, Ambassador Alberta Glorn, Envoy, John Turmel, Master of Commons David Marjanovich, <laughs> let's no fact go unchecked, Lord of the Archives and Records Cameron McCormick, sways the scepter over the Tetsu wiki, and met Tetsu facts and feats, this is something that Cameron compiled, I love this, have you read this? Uh, I don't know whether I've read it recently. Don't open it. Don't open it. Let's test your skills. Okay. The most comments on a Tetsu post, what do you reckon? A few hundred. Give me a number. 500? 661 for the Ratites and Biogeography debacle. The least number of comments on a Tetsu post, what do you reckon? 23. The least number? 
What's the smallest uh, number you I can think I thought you didn't of? post unless you got 23 comments. <laughs> well, today, yeah, but not back in 2006, oh, 7, 8, whatever. Three. So, no, it's none. None. <laughs> 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 it's for <laughs> Snapping Turtles Part 2. <laughs> Hyper-excitability, <laughs> super-cooling, and the inevitable recolonization of Europe in the Anthropocene. <laughs> the 10,000th comment on Tetsu was... This was actually. What do you question. mean? The, the person who did it? The actual no, comment? What, what was the actual comment, <laughs> word know. for word? It was actually. A, this is actually um, a multiple choice question in the Tetsu quiz at TetsuCon. And the answer is it eats babies and turns into a goat at night. The longest title for a Tetsu post is Creating Nick to See in Bats. Apparently, a nice example of how assorted distant relatives can be misleadingly considered close allies on the basis of one or two characters, Vespa Bats part. At 1,389 characters, including spaces. The longest series in Tetsu history was the Vespa Bat series, 20 entries. The most productive eras on Tetsu were June 2007 and July 2009, uh, when, I don't know, for whatever reason, I posted a lot more than I do now. 25 posts? Yeah. How is that even possible? That's like one a day. Yeah, it was one a day. It's because I went through the picture of picture a day. Uh, what picture for the day kind oh, of thing? There needs to be an average length too, right? Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah, but things were different then. I mean, and now, like being contracted to only post four articles a month, there, there isn't plot. Well, there's all kinds of other concerns anyway. So, right, so Tezu Wiki, if you're a Tezu fan, do please check it out. And thank you, and well done to those contributing, putting it together, putting it together. Oh, well, and also, obviously, anyone can edit it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> if you look at the amount of spam and, and false addresses that have been created lately, good God. Now, uh, more promotion, self-promotion. Uh, I am now on Patreon. Patreon is a kind of like a constantly running Kickstarter-style thing where basically you you throw money at people that you want to. So patreon.com forward slash tetzu uh, perpetually bereft of finance as I am uh, any assistance is gratefully received but you know there's no obligation whatsoever so uh, I've got 17 patrons at the moment people like helping giving me tiny sums of money which add up and really appreciate it and basically people get to see sneak peeks of stuff that I've got in the works mostly stuff for the big book tetzu big book which the less said about that, the better. <laughs> so, look, I've been drawing. Look, like, oh, yeah. oh, John! Sorry, you, you, we are in the let's show John a drawing in the podcast. Yeah, look, uh, I like it. That's very nice. Yeah. <laughs> we have left those goddamn fish alone. I'm trying to get the, those. Are, those are mammals, but I've been trying to get through lizards a bit lately. Um, so Patreon, yeah, thank you to my supporters, and and please do consider pledging, like. It's like, you know, a dollar or a pound or something. It really helps. Mm -hmm. um, okay. That is... I think there's anything else right now from the news of the world of Darren John. Um, no, that's it. Okay. News from the world of news. News from the world of news. Da, da, yeah. da, da, da. Now, if there was a major zoological discovery, possibly to be hailed as the zoological discovery of the century, what do you predict it would be? Um, it couldn't possibly be a tapir. That'd be too much. Who who would dare to dream? 
<laughs> of a tapir that is somewhat smaller but virtually identical to another tapir being <laughs> argued to be possibly but maybe not well it's funny species. to say that because as described in a recent issue of Journal of Mammalogy, Mario Coswell and colleagues have described the new tapir species Terebris Kamimani, described originally from Brazil, but also known from, which uh, was originally shot by Teddy Roosevelt in about 1912, and a skull of one of them has been sold in the American Museum of Naturalist in New York since all that time, and several other papers have been published since contesting its reality and blah, 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 blah. Uh, right, other papers. Uh, oh my God, I said I'd get these open so I knew what to say. I want to... Um, Briefly, really briefly, because I can't believe all that. One you said, oh, there's things I have to have to do it, and it's... you wandered around and clicked some buttons and did a whole bunch of stuff, and then you've got nothing. You've got absolutely like... nothing. <laughs> there was like about thirty things to do, and I managed to do half of them. Um, I haven't even got the Empire Strikes Back scripts to hand, so how we're going to finish the show, I don't know. Um, so just re- oh, two-minute rule is in effect, uh-huh, I should say, uh-huh. by the way, and also the. Uh, Drinking game. Drinking game. Okay, let's 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 get going then. Archelosaurus. Very, very briefly, very brief, very briefly there. Yeah. Um, Not a good start. Arche- right. Uh, so, so what what are turtles? Turtles are reptiles, but how are they related to other reptiles? Conventionally, uh, people have generally said, on the basis of anatomy, that turtles belong outside of diapsida. Diapsida being the clade that includes lizards and snakes and their relatives, and archosaurs and their relatives. But Turtles are weird. There's a number of anatomical features that actually suggest they are within diapsida, and molecular characters have consistently found them to be within diapsida. Some studies find them to be on the lizard and snake branch, but the majority of studies from different genes and combined genes and all other, you know, whole genome studies and stuff, they tend to find turtles on the archosaur branch. And a new paper, which I don't have opened with me, so I can't remember the names of any of the authors, a new paper presents a pretty, you know, compelling case for an archosaur affinity for turtles and they the authors Crawford et al this paper is published in molecular phylogenetics and evolution standard bedtime reading for those interested in phylogeny and uh, evolution uh, Crawford Parham Sellers Faircloth Glenn Pappenfuss Henderson Hansen Simerson it's mostly based on the you know the in-group relationships of the different turtle clades but yeah they find strong support for this uh, turtle archosaur clade and the big deal the thing that people will have to remember is they name the turtle archosaur clade they give it a new name they call it Archelosauria which is a hybrid word invented from Archosauria and Kelonia, Kellus, you know, whatever, turtle, Archelosauria, Ar- spelt Archelosauria. So um, now, I could talk about this for ages, but I'm not going to. Remember, you know, people that only know living animals will think, oh, this means that there were animals that were intermediate between turtles and archosaurs, like, you know, crocodilians and such, um, and birdy things, dinosaur things. But remember, there's a whole slew of, there's loads and loads of fossil lineages, non-archosaurian archosauriforms, and non-archosauriform archosauromorphs, right, which have to be accounted for as well. Are they still closer to archosaurs than turtles are? In which case, you've got turtles, then all these archosauromorphs and archosauriforms, and then archosaurs in the tree, or... Or is it that turtles are deeply nested within this clade and are really close to archosaurs? 
Yes, sorry. Is it the turtles are close to archosaurs? And then all those non-archosaurian archosauriforms and non-archosauriform archosauromorphs are outside archaeosauria. And again, pretty much impossible to explain without diagrams. Hope you're following this. Mm. But um, but and the answer is we don't know because obviously we don't have any genetic data whatsoever on all those fossil animals, most of which are from the Triassic. So, um, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So the case for a turtle archosaur clade... Uh, we 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 touched on this a while back, didn't we? Yeah, As we you talked were about it for a while, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Right. So that's that. But I'm sure we will come back to it again and again and again. Yes. Until it's settled. Settled. Mm. As if. Uh, oh, the whole in- the in group relationship with turtles as well is is a pretty cool subject, but we're not going to do that right now. Maybe another time. Maybe we'll get a cash for question. Yeah. Hint, hint. Yeah. Along. The- <laughs> 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 um, okay. Uh, Vintana. Vintana. Yeah, now you'll like this mm-hmm. because the previous episode we discussed multituberculates, uh, which are rodentivoli type, yeah. mostly mesozoic things. That they're, now multituberculates mostly inhabit the northern continents, not exclusively because there are some from South America and Australia, but they're mostly a northern thing. But in the Cretaceous, there was a southern hemisphere group of similar animals called the Gondwanotheres. They're known from South America, Africa, India, Madagascar. And they've always been known from just chunks of jaw, bits of skull, bits of teeth, which show that, again, they're kind of like, you know, rodenty type things with chewy dentition. But I'm trying to find the paper and I just can't. I, can't, I, I haven't given it a clever title in my file here. But um, this new paper on uh, a Madagascan latest Cretaceous Gondwana there called Vintana. Uh, well, provides us with, you know, a crap load of information on these things. So, Vintana is big, Mm -hmm. right? For a Mesozoic mammal, its skull is about 12 centimeters long. So the whole animal, they say, is something like, they they estimate about eight kilos. So, you know, an animal that's kind of like the size of a beaver, that kind of size. Um, It's got a really weird head. If you check out... um, pictures online I, like i said i can't find the paper right now but um it's got it's got really massive descending dugal squamosal kind of sections of the skull which means that which means it's got this these giant bony flanges that are really far down on the side of the face superficially similar to what you see in um ground sloths and glyptodonts they have these these like a uh, sort of cheek bony cheek regions that are way down on the side of the face which is really weird Vintana's got really big eyes and complicated internal ear anatomy indicating that it had really acute eyesight and really good hearing as well. And I think they say some stuff about its uh, sense of smell, but I can't remember what they do say. So, so this, is, this is now one of the... Basically, it fits into the whole idea that the Mesozoic... Mesozoic mammals and mammalia forms, so mammal-like cynodons... Um, they weren't just all little tiny shrews in the Cretaceous, which is kind of the stereotype, but they were doing quite a few interesting things. There were aquatic ones, amphibious ones, a few gliding ones, a lot of tree-climbing ones, burrowing ones, and a few that reached large size. Repinomamus from Lower Cretaceous China, famous for being this badger-sized predator that could eat um, little baby dinosaurs. We know from stomach contents that it did eat baby dinosaurs. But Vintana, this big Madagascan Gondwana there. So again, a a reasonably big mammal Mm. in its fauna. And um, yeah, interesting sensory abilities. 
Um, what are Gondwana fears? Well, they say in the paper that um, that uh, phylogenetic analysis indicates that they are members of the same lineage as multituberculates and haramyids, which is a controversial but multituberculate-like group. So, so this this group of gnawing rodent-esque things that aren't um, yeah, they're not at all related to, to rodents or uh, placental mammals at all, but they are mammals. They are within the clade that includes monotremes and therians. Um, yeah, they're doing some cool stuff in the Mesozoic. And I still haven't found the paper. All right. Uh, let's see. So uh, that was the Gondwana theory. Gondwana theory. Carterinkus is, is this um, like prototype ichthyosaur just published by Lievsky, Martani, and colleagues. And uh, to avoid discussing that at any length, I'll just direct people to the Tetchbod Zoology article. Tetchbod Zoology, currently hosted at Scientific American. Uh, I tend not to cover news stories, but what happened with this paper is I was asked, a journalist asked me for a bunch of quotes, which meant that I wrote like 200 words, and I thought, 200 words? I'll just put that on Tetzu. But then it's like, oh, I need to add this. Oh, I need to, I need to add this. I need to say this. And from 200 words, it quickly zooms up to thousands. Mm. But... um. Yeah, short-snouted suction-feeding proto-ichthyosaur sheds light on fish lizard beginnings. And ta- and look at the comments; they're very enjoyable. Tetrabods of course, has also featured articles on phytosaurs recently, a group of Triassic crocodile-like archosauriforms. Um, and what the, okay, so that's Carterinkus. One more thing on news from the world of news. This. You, I didn't write it down, but I, I meant to talk about. I was about to this, say it's this, not in the agenda. We have to move on. Oh, okay, I'll stop oh, there. I'm kidding. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> Uni- the discovery of unidirectional breathing in iguanas. Oh. So, we've got tidal lungs, which means we breathe in and we breathe out, and that's it. Air goes in, air goes out. Birds have got this flow-through system where the air is constantly circulating in a loop. You breathe in, the air in the lungs moves around, and during the next breath... Oh, no, that's a really bad way of explaining it. Mm. Basically, it just means that there's this constant circular motion of uh, of air without there being just all the air going the in. All the air, air only air. goes across the lungs in one direction. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and this unidirectional system was discovered to be present in crocodilians a couple of years ago. So, wow, they've got the unidirectional system as well. And then it was discovered in monitor lizards so it's like what does this mean has it evolved independently in monitor lizards or was it ancestrally present in the ancestral diapsid inherited by squamates inherited by archosaurs turns out it wasn't actually a brand new discovery in monitor lizards it had been documented in the 1930s but mostly overlooked partly because the literature concerned was in German and the same bunch of researchers Colleen Farmer and colleagues they have also now discovered documented unidirectional non-tidal breathing in iguanas as well, which now it could be that it's evolved independently in in the iguana lineage, the monitor lizard lineage, crocodilian lineage, and the bird lineage, or maybe in iguanas, baronids, and archosaurs independently. But I don't know. At the moment, it looks more likely that it was an ancestral Hmm. thing for the clade that includes squamates, that's lizards and snakes, and archosaurs. That's pretty interesting. yeah, Yeah, yeah. Obviously, the... Air sac system 
present in dinosaurs, including birds, and also pterosaurs as well. That's like an elaboration of this system because yeah. they've evolved like loads of sacs that come off the the lungs. But yeah, as John says, the unidirectional system. The idea is that the air flows continuously through the lungs and follows another route to get out. It's not just like into the lungs and out of the lungs again, as it is in us. Yeah, I mean, it's I'll... a bit confusing because they still do breathe in and out. It's just uh, inside the 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 um air is flowing through a loop rather than a back and forth over the same same place. Yeah. Although of course it does go back and forth through sinuses and other things, right? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Um which is which makes it more efficient uh, for gas exchange. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's is that cool. all the news from the world of news? Uh, well, there's more, but that'll <laughs> that'll do. That's <laughs> recent recent stuff that's caught my interest alright so let's let's do uh, cash for question huh let's cash for questions oh yeah I don't want to shout ok good ordinarily I would would you like this <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to you do it the are you you read the question I am going to read the question but I was cash waiting... for questions there we go knock knock who's there an interrupting cow. Interrupting cow. <laughs> There's lots of variations on that joke. Yes. Knock knock. Oh, Who's there? Interrupting baby. Interrupting. <laughs> yep. What other fascinating variations are there? I think you get the idea. Oh yeah, yeah. I think I've got the idea there. All right, let's um, let's do the cash for question then, shall we? All right. This is from Ralph Chapman. Yeah, do you reckon that's is that the Ralph Chapman? Um, well, whichever Ralph Chapman it is, he's probably going to be a bit angry if uh, we describe him as not the Ralph Chapman. So yes, <laughs> oh, yes, <laughs> <laughs> good save. <laughs> Thank you for the question, Ralph. I was recently. <laughs> Are you done? <laughs> yes. All right. It's the drinking game. You're only wasting your own time here, Darren. Yeah. <sighs> it's not clever and it's not funny. It is big, though. Right, come on. I was recently <laughs> reminded how great the TV series The Velvet Claw was. Um, I don't know whether I should say this, but he says, it's all, nearly all available on YouTube if, if everyone should wa- and everyone should watch it. It made me wonder, why are there so few species of hyena now, and how did it happen that hyenas and canids as families basically switched roles from the days of Borophagan dogs and cursorial hyenas? Mm. Are you familiar with the Velvet Claw? I haven't seen it, no. But have you read about it? Because I've written about it several times on Tetrapod Zoology. I have, but you know my memory, so it's all gone. Yeah, John's got no memory. So the Velvet Claw was a BBC television series that um, screened in ooh, uh, about 1992 or 91, something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, six parts or something went to the history of carnivorans. This group of mammals, generally called carnivores, most mammal people, most people in, well, most biologists, conservationists aren't, call them carnivores. So I kind of think we should use that. That's the majority, you know, term in use. But given that carnivore just means anything that eats meat, 
as well. Uh, yes, it's ambiguous. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah, there is this push among phylogenetically minded people to get the group called the carnivorans. That's what I would prefer, the carnivorans. But <clears throat> uh, there's cats, dogs, bears, weasels, seals, blah blah blah. Although seals, sea lions, and walruses often get missed out. They're not covered in the velvet claw, for example, as if they don't exist. Well, no, I think they're alluded to, but whatever. Anyway, so the Velvet Claw did a really good job of talking about the diversity of extant carnivoran groups and also about discussing their evolutionary history um, in terms of sort of, you know, narrative style, but also telling you about some of the fossil taxa and how they might have lived. And so, yeah, I absolutely agree with Ralph. I've written about it several times, Tetrapod Zoology. There's a few articles. If you put in Velvet Claw Nash or Velvet Claw Tetrapod Zoology, you'll find... Yeah, you'll find me talking about it and reminiscing and seeing other people say how good it was. As to this question about hyenas, uh, why are there so few species of hyena now and how did it happen that hyenas and canids basically switched roles? The answer is, nobody knows. And <laughs> we move on. Uh, so, take a drink. There we go. There's your answer, Ralph. <clears throat> um, as it happens, so there's, the, we're, there's two good sources to go to on this question. So hyenas, if you wanted to find out about the fossil history of hyenas, you would go to <clears throat> Lars Wordlin, what do you reckon, Wordlin or Verdlin? I've, I've never known how to pronounce his name. It's spelt Wordlin. Mm-hmm. Verdlin, I, useless on pronunciation, sorry. And Nikos Salunius, this big monograph, which is basically a book, The Hyenidae, Taxonomy, Systematics and Evolution. And it's like the whole history of uh, history and the evolutionary stuff about hyenas. And uh, what's really quite kind of, it's very good. What's kind of peculiar about it is <laughs> there's a lot of, there's, there's a section here about how they do the life reconstructions. But you, you can tell, John, you can tell, as I'm flicking through this, you can see it's like a weighty academic monograph, right? Yes. But but look at that page. This is possible the possible facial appearance of uh, Ictotherium viverinum, alternative facial patterns. Yeah. Which uh, there's there's like a that's nice. That's the, that's the honey badger one. Yeah. That's the ocelot that's one. That's nasty. Yeah. That's yeah. the red panda one. Yeah. That's the raccoon dog one. Mm-hmm. That's the Pikachu one. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know. I just think it's 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 nice. It's very well illustrated. So brilliant volume there on the history of hyenas and dun, dun, dun. dogs dogs their fossil relatives and evolutionary history by wang and tedford illustrated by our good friend mauricio anton mm. and uh, yeah this is kick-ass brilliant awesome book on the history of dogs and it's kind of the, the follow-up to the turner and anton one on cats which many of you will already have and know and love so, um, so to get to the point of this tedious escapade, yes, of showing me books, which is always showing books, <laughs> always good for is, podcasting. Uh, yeah, um, what do they actually tell us about this? The history of these groups. So, hyenids evolved in like the Miocene, uh, something like I don't know. I think it's something like seventeen million years ago, and there's a huge diversity of generalist dog-like hyenas. They are exclusively Old World. So they're African and Eurasian. Hyenids are an Old World thing. And lots and lots and lots of them. I mean, in their cladogram here, Mm -hmm. some of the earliest ones look a bit kind of, say, civitish and initially were classified as civets. 
but they have characters of the the mastoid region, the inflated bones of the back of the skull related to the ear region, which basically show they almost certainly are hyenas. Protictotherium, Pliovivorops, Proteles, that is the extant, Aardwolf, uh, Ictotherium, Thalassictus, Hyenotherium, Myohyenotherium, Hyenictotherium, Lysaena, Hyenictus, Chasmopothetes, Archelahyene, Belbus, Lysaena, Parahyena. This is before you... This is before you get to the extant ones, you see. So the point is the extant ones are just like the tip of the diversity, the tip of the iceberg even in terms of diversity. Um, so there's all these like dog-like ones, and then out of them evolve the bone-cracking ones. And as is often the case in the fossil record, we look at the anatomical characters evolve, the, the anatomical characters concerned. The characters that make a hyena a specialised like bone-cracking one, like the living ones, apart from the odd wolf, which are to do with like reduction of the molars, inflation of the premolars, increasing like depth and strength in the, the rostrum and lower jaw, and, and larger body size as well. Those characters don't all evolve at once. They occur in piecemeal fashion in various of these lineages. Um, so there's all these like, early dog-like generalist ones. It was conventionally thought that the aardwolf was somewhere in among that assemblage, paraphyletic assemblage mm. of dog-like ones. But molecular phylogenies don't support this. They find the aardwolf to be nested within the bone-cracking clade, in which case it's a deviant. You know, the, the aardwolf is a specialised myomacophagus hyena, a, a termite-eating um, uh, hyena. So um, we may have been duped by its anatomy, which does make you wonder about some of the fossil ones then. Uh, are we sure they're all outside the bone-cracking clade? And I don't know. I think we're going to assume for the time being they are outside the bone-cracking clade, apart from the aardwolf. So they're all doing pretty well across the whole of Eurasia. But then after the Miocene, there's this, you know, in the, the Miocene was like regarded as like a heyday for continental mammals. Conditions are really warm and equable. And it's lovely mm-hmm. and it's great if you're a mammal and you evolve into loads of species and everything. Yep. But then as conditions start to cool in the late Miocene and then into the Pliocene, diversity de- declines for lots of groups, including hoof mammals and carnivorans. And all of the generalist dog-like hyenas go extinct once you get towards the end of the Miocene. And you're only left with the bone-cracking ones. <clears throat> okay, so, so And then you've got, yeah, that's all you've got. You've got bone-cracking ones. The aardwolf, which may belong to the bone-cracking clade, and a cursorial hyena called Chasmoporthetes, which persists into the late Miocene in North America, because it gets into North America. It's the only hyena that does so. So that's kind of a quick story of hyenas. So dogs are exclusively American. Their whole history is in North America. Uh, they evolve in, I think, the Eocene or Oligocene Hesperocyon and its relatives a long time ago. We know that even the earliest dogs got out of North America like now and again. There's, there's like one from China that was described quite recently. But otherwise, apart from that, they're all stuck in... All their history happens in North America, except on a few occasions, get out into Eurasia in the Miocene, and you get early kind of fox-like dogs. Um, but then it's not until the Pliocene that you get them getting into South America and then spreading throughout the whole of Euro- Eurasia and Africa. So is there is the spread of dogs linked to the decline of dog-like hyenas? That's 
the sort of hypothesis that people have mooted. It's the one um, pushed in the Velvet Claw. It's implied that dogs got out of North America, take over this dog-like role from hyenas, but the timing isn't quite right to to really for that to to work. And you've got extinctions in dogs that happen at the same time as you've got extinctions in hyenas, in, and probably both groups are being affected similar time in similar ways they're both undergoing some sort of decline i'm not you know people like coming up with these ideas of what's called competitive exclusion yeah the idea that one group moves in and takes over the role but that may not be what what happens at all um both groups may be affected one group may be affected more severely the other one may take advantage of niches niches whatever niches that are available um yeah, sort of radiating more quickly than the other group after sort of a series of extinctions. Yeah, yeah. It's but it hard seemed, to pick that sort of thing apart. It is. But it seems that the decline in the dog-like hyenas is probably not linked to the spread of true dogs because the spread of true dogs happens a few million years after this decline in hyenas. And in his question, Ralph mentions these barophagine dogs. Now, these this this is this group of relatively short-faced bulbous toothed um, dogs that have bone cracking adaptations similar to bone cracking hyenas and because they're sort of convergently similar to bone cracking hyenas in particular Tamarctus and Aelurodon and Barophagus as well conventionally they're reconstructed you you look at like books they're reconstructed as looking like spotted hyenas Mm. they're shown as being really ugly and yeah having like a shaggy pelt and, and spots and stuff but um, Mauricio Anton's reconstructions, which are you know meticulously done, all the muscles in place, and and in the integument based on extant taxa, they like that's that's Tamarctus, John, on the cover of the book. <laughs> which <clears throat> you're not going to look at that and say that's a hyena. Oh, yeah, that's clearly a doggy dog dog. Yeah, and uh, it seems that Barophagines, after all, looked doggish. <laughs> <laughs> they were not. They weren't, but so this is like a, a a hyena mimicking dog clade, but exclusively American. They did not get into the old world. They never like you know scrapped with hyenas proper. They were doing their own thing. The earliest barophagines are little raccoon-like omnivores, and it's only in the late Miocene. Oh, there you go. That's barophagus. So tall forehead, relatively short snout, but all the features otherwise indicating that it's perfectly doggish. Um, yeah, shouldn't be imagined as this kind of like freaky shrink wrapped thing, which which you'll see in some of the some of the popular mammal literature. Mm. But but no competition between these bone cracking dogs and bone cracking hyenas. So these animals, barophagines, go extinct at the end of the Miocene, something like seven eight million years ago, something like that. Um, and presumably that's part of the whole like. Uh, climate-led deterioration decline in continental mammals in North America that's happening at the time. So there's the answer. Is that the answer? Let's have a look at his question again. I think I rambled enough there to To cover it somewhere. Why are there so few species of hyenas? Answer, because a lot of them went extinct. How did it happen? Nice answer. Well, yeah, we we don't know. So, you know, when I was checking... um, Verdlin and Salunius. I checked, you know, why do we think there was this decline? What what happened to all the dog-like hyenas? And they've just got one line in here which says, we don't know. It says... Yeah, I would say it's uh, because numerically speaking, 
there aren't very many of them anymore. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you need to stop reading that book. Sorry, I was just trying to find that there's that quote where they say that they say that the reason for this decline is is you know unknown at present. Um, but yeah, if anybody wants the references or links to where they can get publications that I mentioned, you know, let us know, and we'll. I'm sure John will be happy to help you out there. <laughs> but but yeah, so um, I, I kind of hope that. I, I feel that's fairly poorly organised. That's why I always have to write things down to get them in some sort of semblance of order. But um... well, I think the the inherent in the question is a sort of a causal relationship between the switch and it yeah. looks like there probably wasn't. It was sort of unrelated yeah. extinctions and yeah, selective uh, extinctions selective of whole castes and radiations, and it's just hard to. Too yeah. hard to pick that sort of thing apart. That's right, and the fact that it's mostly happening on separate continents as well. You know what's yeah. happening in dog history, like I say, mostly America, and what's happening in hyenas, mostly old world. Hmm. So um, yeah, this is not a story of the two groups changing roles after they come in into con contact in and contact, compete with yeah. one another directly. So uh, yeah. I hope that covers it well enough. Right. Should write it up, make it into a Tetsu article. Yeah. Thank you, Ralph. Yes, thank you, Ralph. That was a good question. John and I were trying to decide what movies to talk about. So, and I've written down the movies I've seen recently. Monsters University. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that. It's really good. It's much better than Monsters Inc. Monsters Inc. is pretty weak. Monsters University is a good story. Interstellar. Should we say a few things about Interstellar, or are we going to save it until you've seen it? No, we're going to save it until I've seen it. Okay, because yeah. I want to talk about Interstellar. But we will do Interstellar, but I've got to okay, say we'll do Interstellar, yeah. next so, weekend. So there will be spoilers, people, if you haven't seen Interstellar. Mm. Yeah, but not this feelings. episode. Yeah. You don't like, mm. didn't like it, eh? Well, I don't want to say anymore. Okay, no, I really, I really did like it, but also really didn't like it. Okay. <laughs> so, All right. You'll see, what, you'll see why when you see yeah, it. Yeah, I will. Maleficent. Yeah. We've both seen Maleficent. We have. Recently? Yep. Yeah. I watched it about a week ago, I think. Okay. Mine's two months ago, but yeah. I thought it was pretty good. Uh, I thought... Yeah. Yeah. Have you got anything um, in particular to say about it? Yeah. Good. Go ahead. What about you? <laughs> no. You know me, no. I can't remember any of it until you start talking about it. Do you know what I remember most about it? What's that? The crow dude, oh, yeah. Raven guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. whose name I can't remember, because um, it, it, so so that so spoilers, okay, so Maleficent is a fairy, she's Maleficent is the real name of the wicked, what, wicked witch or whatever, wicked queen from the story of Sleeping Beauty, but this is her backstory. Maleficent's her backstory, and she was actually a fairy who rules a kingdom. Uh, called the Moors, and she's friend to all the fairy folk and all the various other creatures that live there, but humanity wants to invade the Moors and take it over and steal its riches and everything. And she meets a human boy when she's a young girl and befriends him, but he betrays her. And um, and she that's why she puts spoilers. the curse on yeah, Aurora, who becomes Sleeping Beauty. And yeah, there's ma major spoilers, because the whole theme of the film is about how <laughs> Maleficent the main theme of the film is about how Maleficent has a strong relationship with Aurora, 
It is Aurora, isn't it? Sleeping Beauty. Oh, I don't know. I can't remember <sighs> any of their names. Yeah. This, and it paints the whole story in a different light. Yes. The redemption of Maleficent. Right. And she's got a sidekick who is a raven, whose name I can't remember. And she turns him into a magic raven. He can be turned into a human man. And uh, that's why. So we get to hear him speak and everything. But she also turns him into other creatures. She turns him into like a wolf, a horse, and a dragon. But they're not regular wolf, horse, and dragon. They're crow, horse, and dragon. So they've got like feathery pelt mm. and a bit of beakiness about their heads and everything. And I'll, and that was pretty flawlessly done if you look at it. Really, really well done. The the actual the morphing and the actual look of the creatures. The dragon in particular was incredible. Uh, and it was a was it a proper dragon? Harking back to our discussion <laughs> about Smaug. Yeah, a ribbon. <laughs> I think it was a real, like a fire drake type dragon. <laughs> the dragon was very good. And also, think of all the times crows have been in movies. Like Sleeping Beauty. It's got a crow in it. Um, oh, and the many, many other occasions as well. <laughs> That's at least... That movie called The Crow. The Crow. Which is pretty terrible. I don't like The Crow. Which, um... Do you know it's going to be remade? I haven't seen it, so I don't even uh, really know what it is, to be honest. Yeah, missed anything. But, but anyway, the point is that crows are traditionally depicted in movies as, as like, the same as vultures. You know, they're like evil, baddie kind of sinister creatures that are up to no good. And shoot them on sight if you can, because they're just bad. Which calls, to those of us who have any experience of corvids, you know, one of the groups of animals I derive the most amount of pleasure from is a crows because of their antiques, because of the, the relationships you can get into with them, the stuff they do. You know, they're always doing clever, cool stuff. They're awesome. They're brilliant. Everyone loves crows. And if you don't, there's something wrong with you. Or you're a gamekeeper and you've got a vested interest in. Um, so in this, in Maleficent, the crow is not a villain. He's like a clever, helpful, you know, good, intelligent crow, like a real one. And uh, I think that's good. And I'm all for that. That's kind of, you know. Yes, well, that was that was Maleficent sorry. was a deliberate moral inversion of the whole story, right? Yeah. So, the the baddies are made into goodies, and the goodies are made into bumblers, or even baddies. Yeah. And I think that they did that incredibly well. Um, although maybe it's not as hard as you think, because often in fairy tales, the goodies, the people end up happy, they do horrible things. That's right, yes. And I always wanted Ansel and Gretel to die. <laughs> and Puss in Boots, in Puss in Boots, he's terrible. <laughs> he, like, he, go, he goes up to people and says, do this or I'll chop you into mincemeat. And so they do it and then the king comes along and gets fooled. And, uh, yeah. A bit when he, yeah. <laughs> it's a, well, <laughs> fairy tales seem to be written from uh, an amoral perspective, right? Mm-hmm. They're meant to have little morals to them, but they don't, or they just so they don't match with our. I was going to say Current modern notion of morality, but yeah. they don't match very well with a traditional Christian notion of morality either. Well, they're pre-Christian, aren't they? Because they're sort of like you know adapted pagan tales that were collected during the Middle Ages. Yeah, but surely they've been over those hundreds of years fairly worked over. But wait a minute. Let's not bring in. We should. You shouldn't have used the c word here, the Christian word, because many of our ideas about. I don't want to start talking about the Bible, but many of our ideas about you know Christian stories, you know, 
pe religious people like Jesus, they, they didn't behave in unnecessarily. Oh, there's loads of cases in the Bible where they, they said, ah, oh, those people are bad, put them all to death and the Lord will be thankful. Yeah, that's mostly in the Old Testament, right? Yeah. But what I'm saying is that, yeah, obviously the Old Testament is like a bunch of, well, they they are essentially fairy tales, I think. They're the same sorts of stories going in, right? They're weirdly amoral and violent and horrific in some ways. But I would say that Jesus sort of um, changed a lot of that, right? I'm not sure. I don't know. It's well, he did. Of... I mean, he sort of said that no, there's got to be some sort of rhyme or reason here, right? And the and the and the basic notion was let's all be nice to each other, <laughs> <laughs> rather than let's kill each other for God's will. It's That's essentially what Jesus did. I, I know, know you don't like discussing this, but I don't think I'm saying anything terrible. Well, um, that's, because, that's because I don't really know what Jesus did say, because there's always different versions of these stories. Mm, well, was... no, I mean, it's pretty clear that's what Jesus... He came, he came, the, Jesus is recognisable as having a central moral thesis, if you see what yeah. I mean. It's, yeah. you know, it's there, it's coherent. Whereas in the Old Testament, God, God help you getting <laughs> something coherent out of that. <laughs> and he's not helping you if he wrote it. Um, yes, uh, so, uh, yeah, the... Where was why? Why do we get onto this? Oh, the moral inversion in Maleficent. Yeah, Maleficent. Yeah. Maleficent. Maleficent. Yeah, is it a new word? Maleficent. Uh, Presumably, I think that's the original name in the. Oh, oh God, I don't know, but it, it really? seems to be oh. the name in the original Disney cartoon. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought they invented a brand new word by mashing together magnificent and. Malevolent, Mal mal malicious, or malevolent? Yes, yeah. Oh, they hmm. did, but I think they did it in the um, original. The Disney, the original Disney film, the original. Well, film. I never did. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, what else did you have to say about that? That the dragon was good. Yeah. Yeah, it was mostly the thing about the crow, because uh, the other stuff, can't remember any of it really. Uh, <laughs> CG animals. I like the fact that so Maleficent, she's meant to be the prime warrior for the Moors kingdom, and uh, so the humans invade, and uh, they raise up this the Moors, the Moor people, the fairy folk and such. They raise up this army of sort of tree creatures, bark creatures, and everything, <laughs> and, and they have the capacity to pay slaughter the entire human army without yeah. receiving one casualty yeah <laughs> not, not lit literally not one but um i think they do i think they like kill a few kill a few of them don't kill all of them it's See, just kind of funny that yeah it seems like a bit stand. of a plot hole that the humans thought yeah let's go or invade this place when the trouncing they got the first time <laughs> you'd think hmm, you know what i think we'll just leave them alone yeah it was so, it's so unbalanced that i don't believe yes. they'd try it literally wasn't. It it wasn't forty, sixty, seventy, yeah, thirty. It was literally <laughs> zero versus total annihilation, which is a quite an interesting concept for a battle. Um, yeah. Well, let's go try again, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it'll be better this time. I've got a bit of a longer sword, or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. What did you think about the fact that it was meant to be the story of Sleeping Beauty, and in the end, she was only asleep for a day or two? Yeah. Didn't quite, um, didn't really vibe with the. Yeah, I think this. that was the biggest concession they had to make. Because, of course, the original story, she's asleep for ages, isn't she? Like a hundred years or something. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, but otherwise everything like the 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 wall of thorns and all that stuff pretty much made sense, pretty much flowed. And the thing with the uh, the little fairy women that look after her, Flora Fauna and whatever the other one's called, yeah, her that 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 all mm. mashed and everything. But yeah, the sleepy thing. Um, yeah, because if she'd only been asleep for a couple of days, I, d- I don't think you'd call her Sleeping Beauty. <laughs> it's Lazy Beauty. <laughs> lazy Beauty. <laughs> Nappy. <laughs> Napping Beauty. <laughs> Duvet Day Beauty. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so yeah, yeah. That that that's. You're right. That they should have. I don't know. I wonder how they could have gotten around that, but. Um, yeah, well, that's the problem. I don't. Th- it was very difficult to get around that, given the whole setup of the plot. Otherwise, they did pretty very well, I think. In because they had specific scenes that were about certain things, you know, and mm. inverting what that scene was about. Yeah, I never got the impression that they had to try really hard to try and force something to fit purely for the sake of it being. Let's have a nod to what comes later by putting it pointlessly in the prequel, as they so often do in prequels. Yes. Uh, like, so I've just Tony and I just saw Wicked at the mm. uh, the theatre, which which really enjoyed, and and obviously it's like a, an alternative story for what becomes the Wicked Witch of the West. It's like her backstory, but spoilers again. But there's completely pointless stuff in there about that shows how the Tin Man, the Lion, the Cowdy Lion, and the um, Scarecrow were all invented. They're all recent inventions by Alphaba, the, that's the Wicked Witch, mm. uh, who who wasn't really wicked and she wasn't really a witch at all, but whatever. And it's like, but I thought the whole idea of the Land of Oz is that it's inhabited by a whole panoply of magical beings. You don't have to come up with some special explanation as to why someone becomes a mechanical man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and how a lion became a special weird cowardly lion yeah. and how someone got turned by magic into a scarecrow. Um yeah, I agree. I think often prequels try to explain too much. Mm. Whereas Maleficent, it never felt like that. It felt like this would be a story which you could just tell. Right? It yeah. didn't feel like there were pointless things in there, or it didn't feel like it was forcing the explanation too much. Which, given what it was, was quite an achievement, I think. It's quite a tricky sort of thing to do. Oh, yeah, that stupid thing where they go and explain things that don't need explaining or put them in anyway. C-3PO in The Fungal Menace, or whatever it's called. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Do we really need baby Darth Vader making C-3PO and let, you know, Star Wars prequels? Yeah. <laughs> you seen that? You seen that cartoon where some parent is... Uh, they've just finished watching the Star Wars trilogy with their kid, and the kid says... Are there any other Star Wars films? And the parents <laughs> said, nope. nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They've just finished watching Return of the Jedi, by far the weakest. Um, <laughs> yeah, they have... Yeah. I hope the new ones are alright, but I, I, I think they're kind of going to be... I think they're going to be slicker and less annoying than the old ones, but I don't think they're going to be good. <laughs> less annoying. Less annoying. But I, I think they're not going to be... My guess is somewhere in the realm of Star Trek reboot. Yeah. Sort of, yeah, yeah okay, that was fun, but... Mm. Yeah, a lot of weird stuff in it. Weak stuff in it. Yeah. Like the the giant um, brewery. <laughs> the, 
the Enterprise is a brewery. Yeah, there's a bit. There's a bit in the in the the new Star Trek, the newer Star Trek movie, where they, you know, whenever they go below decks, it's it's a it's literally a brewery with like you know giant vats of oh, beer so and and metal staircases and stuff. It's not at all like a slick sort of what an what an intergalactic starship would actually be like. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you remember the bits? <laughs> yeah, I do. But I'm not yeah. in, I'm not entirely sure we know what an intergalactic starship would look like on the inside. I don't. Well, I don't think it'd be like a brewery, basically, because that's really not designed for people to move up and down and stuff and stand in. As yeah, <laughs> but they have to move around. Quick. Yeah, but yeah, ship engines. Who knows? Who knows? That's the point. It's impossible, isn't it? So, Ugh. as far as we know, um, is that all you had to say about Maleficent? Do you like the dragon? And that the crow was nice rather than evil. That's pretty much all I wanted to say. I don't really have anything important to say about Maleficent. Okay, we're done. We're done. We're done. Yeah, you're right. We're Yeah. In record time. In record time. Well, actually, it has been an hour and twenty minutes. But yes. Right. So we need to wrap up. Um. So. um, Right. Let's move on. Come on. Come on. Where can they find you on Twitter? Oh yeah. Twitter, I'm at why you slimy double crossing no good swindler. You got a lot, a lot of guts coming here after what you pulled at Tetsu. <laughs> uh, there's a Tetrapods Audi Facebook page which you just should look at. Although maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you should go to the Patreon thing, patreon.com forward slash Tetsu. Thank you to my patrons, really appreciated. Um, I blog as Tetchpodzology, which is currently hosted at Scientific American. If you're interested in any of the stuff that we talk about in this podcast or on Tetchpodzology, you might like to buy our various books, which can be purchased at Amazon and other digital retailers, but preferably from our uh, Irregular Books site. We've published a book called All Yesterdays, which is about science and speculation in paleontology. It's regarded as like a classic in the field of paleo art. And we also published a book on cryptozoology, The Biology, Evolution and Mythology of Hidden Animals, Cryptozoological Volume 1. Both of these books have been co-produced, written, illustrated with our good friend Memo Kozman. Um, and so that's Volume 1 of the Cryptozoological mm. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we really have to finish that Volume 2. Uh, yeah, sorry, uh, apologies to... Uh, 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 Tim Morris, our good friend, who is eagerly awaiting the appearance of Volume Two, I think and he's it will holding happen... his breath, isn't he? <laughs> We're being very cool. Well, um, yeah, it's, it'll be done imminently. Uh, so I think that's me. Oh, and don't forget Tetsu Wiki, mm-hmm. which is at wiki.com forward slash Tetsu. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Oh, wow. No, hang on. What did you say? Wiki.com oh. forward slash Tetsu. No, there's no wiki.com. No, wiki.tetsu.com. <laughs> Close. You don't know how domain addresses work, do you? Obviously, I do. Obviously, no, I do. You don't. There we go. We should also we should also mention um, the Tetsu affiliates stuff by our friends John Tamel and Alberta Claw, who produce Tetsu Time, an adventure time style Tetsu based comic, which hilariously stars John and myself as cartoon characters inhabiting. And that's at time.tetsu.com. And our good friend Ethan Kosak of Black Mud Puppy fame, who you can also find on Patreon, incidentally. Um, uh, Ethan produces the Tetrapod Zoology comic, which is at... Comic.tetsu.com Yay! 
Right, and that's me done. Okay, I'm at johnconway.co. Uh, you can follow me on uh, Facebook and Twitter. you find links to that at my website, or on my website. Under your website. Under my website, <laughs> over my website, plastered all over my website. Back and beyond. Um, that's it. Oh, I will be on Patreon. I am at the moment, but I don't know whether you can actually see my page. I should shut up about that. Um, <clears throat> that's it. Okay, I need to do a quick shout out for people that that played along on uh, Facebook. So Tim Morris, Bobby Bosenecker, shamelessly self promotes his amazing new New Zealand baleen whale, which is called Tohorata. I wanted to say some clever stuff about it, but I haven't read the paper, so I'll mention it another time. Um, our good friend Marco Lev Bossa. Um, who says go and contribute to Tetsuya Wiki Ivan Kwan Doug Ravinsky Bob Nichols on behalf of Bob Nichols we have to say catfish tendril of cheese yeah well done Bob um, but you know have you seen the stegosaurus at the Natural History Museum in London they've got a mounted stegosaurus skeleton at the Natural History Museum yeah it's a new thing and Bob did Bob museum arty guru person mm. Uh, no, no sarcasm intended there. Bob is like the he's now the museum guy, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, in this in this country, Julius Sotonyi, if you're in North America, Bob Nichols, if you're in the UK. Um, yeah, Bob has done the accompanying artwork. Well done. Look, look forward to seeing it. Um, Marcus, good. Thank you for talking about your monocle. Uh, Marcus Buller, Alex Klein, Hans Zeus, Mike Trainer, our most worthy. Uh, supporter over the years all those people and many others <clears throat> um i think that's about it isn't it yeah are we gonna have a um oh yes we're going to end after credits with uncle darren's anecdotes so stay tuned again. for that listeners stay tuned for that everyone enjoyed it last time and if you don't like it well <laughs> off. <laughs> <Can you? laughs> thanks Uncle Darren's Anecdotes. My days as a university undergraduate back in the heady days of the early 1990s were spent in the bars and pubs of Highfield. It was at the fabled Union Bar that I befriended Richie H. and Jimbo Coyne. The three of us were to embark on many adventures. Richie and Jimbo, I discovered, were rally drivers who spent their evenings tearing along small country roads at great speed, often posing a great risk to themselves and, dare I say it, other road users. Both had ridden off numerous vehicles, both had crashed into trees and roadside barriers on frequent occasion and both had cars modified for high speed twisting and turning considered normal in the world of amateur rallying on one particular evening we drove in jimbo's customized mini cooper to a small pub somewhere in the rural wooded regions of north hampshire we rallied all the way there drank a lot and then rallied all the way home richie was navigator a role that requires map reading and the continual shouting of directional commands that are then acted out by the driver we twisted left and right along the small roads at one point heading for a region where Richie had previously collided with a great stone wall constructed between the two halves of a forked road suddenly we found ourselves at that very same spot and smashed a 
full speed right into the wall. The car was ruined. My glasses had flown off my face and become missing, but we were all otherwise uninjured. The wall, fully three meters high and studded with great flint nodules, had proved a most worthy adversary. After some hours, we found ourselves being driven home in a recovery vehicle. Sat in the cab, staring at the dark road ahead, I suddenly noticed the most remarkable apparition. A huge, long-tailed lizard, fully a meter so or long, lurched onto the right side of the road and proceeded to move with a peculiar jerking gait across to the left. I was flabbergasted and called everyone's attention to... To this incredible and unexpected spectacle. As we approached closer, all was revealed it was no giant lizard, but a fox dragging a dead rabbit. The fox's raised tail creating the impression of a reptilian head and neck, the limp trailing body of the rabbit resembling a long tail. I was so impressed by this most startling encounter that I wrote it up, submitted it to the cryptozoological publication Animals and Men, and promptly succeeded in getting it into print. Through an ironic twist of fate, editorial incompetence led to the final page of the report being omitted from the published version of the article, and thus it was that I became recorded for perpetuity as the person who claimed to observe a gigantic hitherto unknown lizard crossing an English road during the small hours of the morning. <laughs>